The woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the ground. He said to her, What is his appearance? She said, An old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. So Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did obey songs. This month's episode of Retelling the Bible drops on October 31st, the spookiest date of all, and it turns out that there is one, just one, ghost story in the Bible. But what a story! It's got it all. A medium, or maybe we should call her a witch, a terrifying apparition, dread predictions of doom, and more than a few theological conundrums. This is a very spooky episode of Retelling the Bible. Episode 2.13, The Endor Witch Project. Saul never wanted this job, and he had never been quite sure how he got it either. Most of it had been a matter of chance and coincidence, like how he just happened to be bigger and stronger than everyone else in his village, and a whole head taller too. Because of this, people had always seemed to defer to him and assume that he knew what he was doing. But Saul rarely felt that way about himself. And, of course, how he had actually become king was literally a matter of chance. The great man, Samuel, had assembled the tribes together and started pulling tiles with the marks of the tribes out of a sack. First he had pulled out Saul's tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Then, in the next round, it had been Saul's clan within the tribe and then his family, and on it went until it was made clear that Saul himself was the Chosen One, apparently the one God wanted to place over all the tribes. And, for some reason, Saul was the only one present to see just how crazy it was to base an entire system of government on a lottery. As the choosing narrowed down to him, he became more and more alarmed, and when it became clear that he was to be chosen, he fled the assembly altogether, and he hid among the baggage. But it did him little good. They found him eventually, and they made him king anyway. But he had never really known what he was doing. He kind of made it up as he went along. Oh, there had been moments— sudden flashes of clarity, when he had known exactly what to do. Like the time when the Ammonites besieged the city of Jabesh Gilead, and the Gileadites had managed to get a desperate message out. When he heard the news, Saul had been plowing in his father's fields, and he suddenly knew exactly what to do. He immediately slaughtered the two oxen that were pulling his plow and he cut up the animals and sent the bloody bits to every tribe and clan in the land with the demand that they come and fight 
and wonder of wonders, it actually worked. And the people came, and they fought, and they won. But those moments of clarity were so few and far between. In fact, it had been years since he had known what he was doing. But he had never stopped looking for that clarity. There had been one time, one time, when he was young, and before all of this king madness had started, when he had felt certain about something. He'd been passing by the most holy place of Bethel, and there'd been a group of prophets coming down the hill. They'd been playing on harps and flutes and tambourines as they danced with wild abandon. And for once, Saul had let his guard down and joined in the dance with all of his heart until he was completely exhausted. He had danced until it was like he had entered into a different state, unlike anything he had ever experienced before. And as he stood there, rocking back and forth, everything had seemed so clear. The very mysteries of the universe seemed clear. It all just made sense. And in that state, he had spoken with such certainty and clarity that people had ever since asked the question, Is not Saul also a prophet then? But it had just been that one time. And ever since, he had been looking to find that experience again. And he had tried everything. He had taken the drugs and the drinks that the prophets sometimes used to induce their altered state. He took it so much, in fact, that he now could not manage without the stuff. But the drugs never took him back to that place of certainty. He tried the music, too. Had hired a young boy, David, that was his name, to play the harp for him to play those same mystical tunes that had worked their magic on him that first time. But the harp music only seemed to serve to make him more and more depressed, and the boy, David, well, he had become a big problem in his own right. A really big problem. So nothing seemed to work. Nothing seemed to help. Everything he tried had only made things worse. But do you know what was the worst part of being a king? It wasn't the battles. Yes, those were terrifying and full of confusion. But when you got into the middle of them, there was a, a kind of exaltation that carried you away, a perverse joy that came from the spraying blood and the cries of men in their pain. Saul could win battles, at least a lot of them, and that was enough to keep his men happy. And the people, too, because it made them feel safe. No, the worst part of the job, well, it was trying to keep Samuel happy. Samuel was the prophet and judge who had anointed him, making him king in the first place. And Samuel, who had led the people in his own way, had some very firm ideas about the how the job was supposed to be done. And Saul just never seemed to do anything quite right in Samuel's eyes. 
like this one time. Saul had called up the men of the tribes to go to war. They all gathered at Gilgal, ready to go out and fight the Philistines. But before they went to fight, there had to be a sacrifice, for they could not fight without ensuring that Yahweh would be on their side. Samuel was supposed to come and perform the sacrifice. He had said that he would be there. So Saul waited for Samuel to arrive, and waited, and waited. A whole week went by, and there was still no sign of the prophet. The people were muttering and giving Saul dark looks. The fighters began to leave. They were just poor farmers after all. They had crops to tend and chores to take care of. They couldn't afford to wait around forever doing nothing. If they were going to fight, they wanted to fight. Otherwise, they were just going to go home. Saul felt like he had no choice. He went ahead and performed the sacrifice. The auspices were good. The animals' entrails promised good success. The army was all fired up and ready to go, and it was at that moment that Samuel finally chose to arrive. He sauntered into camp and proceeded to chew Saul out for presuming to sacrifice right there in front of everyone. The men were shocked and wondered what they were even doing following Saul at all. It sapped all of their enthusiasm for the coming fight, and the entire campaign against the Philistines was almost a disaster. In fact, it would have been if Saul's own son, Jonathan, hadn't practically pulled off a miracle victory single-handedly, almost getting himself killed in the process. Saul tried, and he tried, to please Samuel. But nothing ever seemed good enough. Another time, Saul had won an absolutely stunning victory over the Amalekites. I mean, it had been amazing. He had captured their king and slaughtered a huge number of their men and even their flocks. It was the greatest victory of his life. And there he was, in the midst of his victorious troops. Everyone was celebrating, and Saul was preparing to give thanks to Yahweh with sacrificial victims that Saul had set aside from the general slaughter. Once Yahweh had had his fill of the smoke of the bones and fat and organs, there would be a great feast for all the men who had fought so well, so bravely. Now, it was true that before the battle, Samuel had instructed Saul, saying that the Amalekites were under the ban of God, and that men, women, children, even all of the animals, were to be slaughtered in devotion to Yahweh. But surely that didn't mean you couldn't make a few sacrifices. You had to honor your God, and you had to feed your men. You couldn't ask men to fight like that, putting their lives on the line and give them nothing at all when it was done. Why would anyone ever follow Saul again if he did that? But before he could even begin the sacrifices, who should come wandering into the camp but old Samuel? And once again, 
he totally humiliated the king in front of everybody. He called Saul a screw-up and an idiot. He said that Saul had failed so badly that both he and Yahweh regretted ever making him king in the first place. With a few moments of scathing criticism, Samuel almost completely destroyed everything that Saul had ever accomplished. It went from his best day ever to his very worst in a moment. But that's what it was like with Samuel. Saul never seemed to be able to please him, never seemed to be able to do anything right in his eyes. But the more Samuel rejected him, the more Saul craved his approval. He would have done just about anything to get a smile or a nod. But the harder he tried, the more demanding Samuel got. It was maddening. There were days when he hated Samuel, ranted and raved against him for hours. What he couldn't do was stop caring about him and what he thought. That was why, when Saul first heard that the old man had finally gone and died, his first reaction was a feeling of pure joy, followed mere moments later by the deepest panic that he had ever experienced. He was free, free at last from the need to do the impossible and please Samuel. But at the same time, he didn't know what to do with the sudden and certain knowledge that he would never be able to earn his approval. Not ever now. And the worst part was that this all had to happen now, even as Saul was dealing with the biggest crisis of his kingship. The great battle with the Philistines had finally come, and Saul was not ready. It was the night before the big battle, and Saul couldn't sleep. The Philistine army encamped against him was huge. Their tents covered the plain, and there were more chariots than Saul could count. And Saul didn't have any chariots at all. But that wasn't what really bothered him. He had faced long odds before, and he had been able to win. No, what really bothered him was the now familiar lack of certainty. He tried the usual remedies. The drugs, the mystical music, though the harpist he had now had nothing on David. Say what you will about David, but that man could play. Saul had even consulted the Urim and the Thummim, the flat rocks that his priest would cast, seeking a specific answer. But nothing would work. He felt like a fraud, a king totally out of his depth, who didn't know what to do. This made him turn, in his thoughts, to Samuel. Samuel, for all his faults, was always so sure about everything. He always knew what needed to be done. Yes, 
What he was usually most sure about was that Saul had done it wrong and screwed up everything. But there was a comfort in knowing that someone was that certain about everything. The thought of going out there and fighting without Samuel somewhere behind the scenes, without Samuel giving him some really bad advice that he could scorn and forget, without Samuel telling him that he'd done it all wrong when he reported back to him afterwards, that terrified him. How many times had he complained about Samuel and how he couldn't please him? How many times had he cursed the old man for a fool and a hindrance? But now, now he just felt like he couldn't go on without knowing the man was out there somewhere. But uh, what if Samuel wasn't really gone? The people had long believed that the dead were not so far off as they seemed. When people died and were buried in the ground and descended into Sheol, it was possible to summon them back, to minister to them and communicate with them. There had always been people in the land who specialized in such communications. People were afraid of them, spat on the ground when they drew near, but everyone respected the power that they had. But the prophets, people like Samuel, hated the mediums and witches because they claimed knowledge and power that was unavailable to the prophets. They especially objected because so many of them were women, and they felt that women had no place to speak of such matters. At Samuel's insistence, Saul had barred such people from practicing their dark arts throughout the land. But now Saul began to think that a witch or a medium was exactly what he needed. I'm not a witch, said the old woman of Endor. I'm not a witch. But you are dressed like one, replied the puzzled king. They dress me up like this, said the woman, gesturing at the king's courtiers. And this isn't my nose, it's a false one, she added as she lifted up the carrot that had been tied to her face. The king turned to his men. Well, the men could only look at the ground. Well, we did do the nose. The nose and the hat, but she is a witch. Never mind all that, said the king. We don't have time to do sketches. The battle will be in the morning. He turned back to the old woman. We know what you are, but you have nothing to fear from us. Do this one thing for me, and you will be paid, and I guarantee you on my honor that no harm will come to you. The old woman did her thing. She built a small, smoldering fire, which she then covered with green herbs. A strong, sweet smoke filled her hovel, and Saul found it difficult to concentrate. 
she sang songs to the departed spirit world and offered them gifts of wine and bread. Before long she had fallen into the altered state that Saul remembered from that one time he had been with the prophets, the state that had eluded him ever since. Finally, in a strained voice, the woman announced that she was ready. All right, she said. With whom will you speak? Whose rest do we disturb today? Samuel, said the king. I need to speak with the old man, Samuel. The woman opened one eye to look at him, but she nodded. When the woman spoke again, minutes later, her voice was different. It was like she was speaking from a very dark and remote place. Saul felt the skin on his arm stand up straight, and a cold shiver passed through his entire body. I see a being, a divine presence. He is coming up, said the witch. Who is it? What does he look like? It is an old man and he is wearing a robe. And yes, that could have been just about anybody. How many old men who wore robes had died recently? It wasn't the description, but something else that made the king sure that he knew who this was. Feeling of inadequacy that somewhat familiar feeling that he really didn't know what he was doing. It suddenly overwhelmed him in a way that took his breath away. Only one person had ever been able to make him feel like that. It is Samuel, he whispered. Suddenly the woman's eyes snapped open. I am betrayed! She cried, You are Saul, you are the king, and my life will be forfeit. Settle down, woman, said the king. I have told you that no harm will come to you. Now, let me speak to the old man. Saul heard the voice, and he would never forget it. It came from far away like a whisper carried on a breeze. It was like the voice that was created by the wind blowing through the dry reeds, and yet every word was distinct. It was the tone rather than the timbre of the voice that made the king certain that he was indeed in the presence of the old prophet. Why, why, why have you disturbed me? Why, why have you brought me up? 
For a moment, Saul didn't know what to say. He didn't even know why he had wanted to find himself yet again in the presence of a man who had been the bane of his existence for so long. But then he convinced himself that he hadn't come for his own sake, but for the sake of the kingdom, a kingdom that Samuel himself had worked so hard to build up. I... I don't know what to do, the king stammered. The Philistines, they're... There are so many of them, and they are so strong, and and God won't speak to me. Not through the prophets, not through the stones, not through dreams. I am... Uh, I'm lost. So, 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 so why ask me? God, God doesn't need a leader who is lost, who doesn't, doesn't know what to do. He's moved on. Found somebody else, someone, someone who may have his flaws, but at least he's decisive. He's not weak, confused like you. Now, what was his name again? David, said the king, as a cold lump formed in his belly. His name is David. That was it. Handsome young fellow, as I recall, but but as for you, Saul, you're done. The Philistines will see to that. See you soon. You and your son, too. The sense of the overwhelming presence of the old man was suddenly gone, taking most of the air in the room with it. The king collapsed headlong to the dusty ground of the hut. The next morning, when Saul stood in front of his troops, his bowels churning, and he prepared to face the Philistines. He knew that he was only there because of the old woman. He had been helpless. He had lost all strength and all will to live. But she had come to him and spoken to him with a tenderness that had previously been hidden from all view. She had bodily lifted him from the ground and all but forced him to eat a few morsels of food. His bodily strength was restored, even if he had no strength at all left in his spirit. And so he had been able to go on his way. He was grateful to her. It was thanks to her that he stood here. He was grateful not because she had saved his life, she hadn't. He knew now that he was doomed to die on this battlefield, he and his son and most of his army with him. It would be the end of his kingdom and of his dynasty. 
And if that rat, David, wanted to pick up the pieces, well, let him do so. The story of Saul and the medium, or witch, of Endor is one of those biblical stories that many people stumble over. I remember once hearing a biblical literalist explain the story to me. You see, the literalist position seems to be that there are no such things as ghosts. The logic is based, of course, on what the Bible says about the afterlife, that it clearly indicates where human beings go after they die, and there is no place in that afterlife description for the ghosts of the dead to visit this present world. Therefore, the teaching goes, there are no such things as ghosts, and any people who experience them are either deluded or perhaps have been visited by demons who are impersonating a loved one who has departed. That logical conclusion is clearly called into question by the story of Saul and the witch of Endor, in which the Bible declares, in no uncertain terms, that it actually was the prophet Samuel who came up at the call of the witch to speak with King Saul. How then to explain that? The solution that I was offered for this was that it was an exception. This, my teacher said, was the one and only time in the history of the world when the real spirit of a departed being actually returned to this present plane. Now, I personally have a hard time with that when anyone appeals to a one-time exception to explain a biblical inconsistency. I have heard, for example, the same kind of explanation given for the ability of Balaam's ass to speak. I hope that my episode based on that incident clearly indicated what I thought of that kind of explanation. I am not a biblical literalist, and so I don't necessarily feel that everything that is described in the Bible has to have happened exactly like it says nor do I have a huge problem with inconsistent messages between biblical texts and stories. I recognize that though it was an inspired book, the Bible was written by very many different people for many different reasons and purposes, and they brought their own biases and ways of thinking to everything that they wrote and described. I think inconsistencies and even direct contradictions are only to be expected. None of that invalidates the Bible in my mind because I don't bring expectations of complete consistency to this book anyways. What then are we to do with this story of the ghostly visitation of Samuel? I would personally acknowledge that most of the people who wrote the Bible at various stages of its development shared the same view of the afterlife that the people around them shared. They believed that it was possible that the spirits of the dead were not so far off as they might have seemed. They believed that the dead could sometimes visit the living and even influence events in this world. The cult of the dead 
in which bereaved family members would visit the graves of the people that they had lost and commune with them in real ways as they brought them gifts of food and drink, was common throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. And there is absolutely no reason to think that the Israelites did not do as their neighbors did, despite what it might say in the scriptures. Archaeological evidence found in ancient burial sites indicates that the Hebrews did engage in a cult of the dead. So most of the people who heard the stories told in First and Second Samuel would not have stumbled over the idea that Samuel might have visited Saul after his death. They would have seen it as quite possible, perhaps even common. I personally don't believe in the existence of ghosts, at least not as they are usually portrayed in horror stories. I struggle with the idea that ectoplasmic beings are wandering around the streets of New York, as we see in Ghostbusters. And yet I would say that there is probably a lot of truth buried in traditional ghost stories. A serious look at the relationship between King Saul and Samuel, as portrayed in the Bible, makes it easy to see why the king might have been haunted by the presence of Samuel, even after the old man's death. I have no problem with the idea that he might have visited some sort of medium in an attempt to process the very real issues that he was struggling with, and that she might have enabled him to confront those issues using her quote-unquote dark arts. Of course, whatever she did for him was ultimately insufficient and Saul went on to face the biggest battle of his life, psychologically unprepared, which could have only contributed to his downfall. I would not advocate that people go to mediums to try and sort out their unresolved issues with people that they have lost in their lives. I actually strongly believe that there are better ways to deal with such things. But, Really, however we do it, we all need to learn to deal with these things better. And I'm willing to take that lesson from Saul's ghost story. That is it for this special Halloween episode of Retelling the Bible. I'm now working on a monthly schedule for this podcast, so the next episode will come out on the last Wednesday in November. That will be our last episode of this second season but I do have some special things planned for December, so do stay tuned. In the meantime, tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The special music for this episode is taken from Holes of the Dead and Ghostocalypse, which are both pieces of music by Kevin MacLeod and are licensed under the Creative Commons. You can find them at incompetech.com. Special audio effects by Gabrielle McCandless. I would also like to acknowledge, of course, that there is a certain block of dialogue that, yes, is a tribute to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. 
Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.